I didn't come to Congress to impeach the president, but when faced with a crisis of this magnitude, I cannot with a clean conscience ignore my duty to defend the Constitution. Thank you very much, Katie Porter. Congressman from I got the feeling that something right. Conservative I'm Orange scared in case I fall off my chair. Good for her. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Doing the right thing and all. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. Pacifica Radio in Los and Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth on those and other fine affiliates. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. The uh, breaking news late today, the fine-tuned machine, as Donald Trump called it, continues to be in serious need of a tune-up, it it seems, as another major cabinet nomination was pulled this afternoon. That despite, as we all know, Trump hiring only the best people. According to AP, after months of unexplained delays, acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan stepped down on Tuesday before his formal nomination was ever sent to the Senate, citing a, quote, painful family situation that would hurt his children and reopen wounds we have worked years to heal. President Trump on Tuesday pulled the nomination of Shanahan to be the permanent defense secretary, saying on Twitter that, Shanahan was, quote, stepping aside to, quote, devote more time to his family. The move leaves the Pentagon without a permanent leader at a time of escalating tensions with Iran after attacks on oil tankers by someone we don't know who in the Persian Gulf. And uh, the Trump administration has blamed Iran for the explosions that damaged the two tankers, though they have presented no evidence to support that charge. Trump named Mark Esper the Secretary of the Army and a former Raytheon executive to take over as acting Secretary of Defense. He did not say whether Esper would be nominated for the permanent position, however. In a Twitter post, the president said the withdrawal was the decision of Shanahan, who had served six months as acting Defense Secretary, uh, filling in after James Mattis left 
In protest, Trump announced in May that he would nominate Shanahan, but the formal nomination process had been inexplicably delayed for many, many weeks. Shanahan, who is a former Boeing executive, has been leading the Pentagon as acting secretary since the beginning of the year, which is a highly unusual arrangement for arguably the most sensitive cabinet position. In a statement today, Shanahan said, quote, it is unfortunate that a painful and deep, deep, deeply personal family situation from long ago is being dredged up and painted in an incomplete and therefore misleading way in the course of this process. At the Pentagon, according to The New York Times, officials were internally discussing that a routine FBI investigation was dragging on for Shanahan because of his divorce, which included an allegation from his ex-wife, which he denies, that he punched her in the stomach. Shanahan said that his ex-wife was the one who started the fight, and his spokesman said that she was arrested and charged with domestic violence, charges which were eventually dropped. According to documents viewed by The Times in 2011, Mr. Shanahan's son, who was 17 at the time, hit his mother repeatedly with a baseball bat, and she was hospitalized. In an interview with The Washington Post uh, on Tuesday, Shanahan said that bad things can happen to good families. He called the episode a tragedy and said that dredging it up publicly will ruin my son's life. Well, maybe so. But this seems to be another instance of the Trump administration not vetting anybody in any way, shape or form before they hire them on for a job. Uh, during his uh, tenure as acting defense chief, Shanahan was criticized for slighting Lockheed Martin, which is Boeing's chief competitor for its mismanagement of uh, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, an aircraft that is years behind schedule, millions of dollars over budget. Uh, he was widely viewed as acquiescing to the White House and other government officials, including John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. The president also has an acting chief of staff at the White House and an acting secretary of Homeland Security. Esper, for his part, is a uh, top lobbyist for defense contractor Raytheon, so so far... Since the general has left, we're putting nothing but uh, defense contractor lobbyists and executives in uh, this role at the top of the Defense Department. He was also an executive at the right-wing U.S. Chamber of Commerce, this new guy, Esper. He has a long history of ties to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Besides Esper, officials uh, said that Mike Pompeo, the current Secretary of State, who had been the director of the CIA... And Richard Spencer, the Secretary of the Navy, are both on the short list for Defense Secretary. Just kind of amazing, but we shouldn't be amazed anymore. Desi Doyen, you will have our latest Green News report coming up a bit later today. Yes, with, I will. As usual, lots of cheery stuff, I expect. <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, we, we, we deliver the news. We cannot take responsibility for you're what right. it is. No, you're right. Uh, the, among that uh, cheery news is the still unexplained power grid collapse in a bunch of South American countries over the weekend uh, for several hours, leaving tens of millions of people without power in Argentina and Uruguay, Paraguay. That and uh, some actually good news out of the U.K. today. Uh, but there was an aspect of that power outage. You probably heard of it, about it, which, again, the cause of it's unknown. And there are uh, concerns that it could have been part of a cyber attack on the electric grid 
in Argentina uh, that that is actually shared among several of those countries. As CBS notes in their coverage, a massive blackout left tens of million people without electricity in Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay on Sunday. The Argentine the Argentine president called it unprecedented. Public transportation was halted. Shops closed and patients dependent on home medical medical equipment were urged to go to hospitals with generators. But here's the part that caught my eye. Argentine voters were forced to cast ballots by the light of cell phones in gubernatorial elections. So I guess the good news, because they vote on hand marked paper ballots in the country and don't rely on computers to cast votes or computers to sign in people to the polls with electronic poll books, as so many now do in the U.S., at least they were able to keep voting there even with the power grid down, even if it meant they had to use flashlights from their mobile phones to see who they were voting for on their hand-marked paper ballots. Had that been Election Day in the U.S. and our power grid went out for some reason, whether a storm or a cyber attack of some sort by someone, we would have been we would have had utter chaos in this country. I mean, just complete havoc as voters would not be able to vote in many parts of the country. And that would include, by the way, beginning for the 2020 presidential primaries right here in Los Angeles County, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation where we are. And we are now moving to 100 percent unverifiable computer touchscreen ballot marking devices here. If the power goes out, we are screwed on Election Day. Of course, we're not the only ones moving to these insane new computer voting systems that rely on power to be able to vote. The state of Georgia is moving to such a new and 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen system before the next presidential election. Counties in the swing states of Ohio and Pennsylvania. And yes, Philly, Philadelphia is supposedly moving to unverifiable Ballot marking device or BMD systems instead of hand marked paper ballots. Counties in Texas use these same systems in Kansas, Iowa, Delaware. The U.S. House has already passed H.R. 1, which mandates hand marked paper ballots for every voter. Senator Ron Wyden in the Senate has called uh, uh, has introduced the PAVE Act, which also mandates hand-marked paper ballots, but Mitch McConnell is not allowing that to come up for a vote. So while we will, no doubt, be talking about a lot of this as we move forward and as jurisdictions continue to move to voting and tabulation systems that cybersecurity experts warn strongly against, and as we get closer to actual voting in the 2020 primaries, we'll be talking more about this. But I will I will continue to put this on your radar so you can at least know where we are headed and maybe just maybe uh, bug your local election officials to make sure that hand marked paper ballots are available for every voter and to try to keep them from moving to BMD systems, ballot marking device systems. Uh, for voters, other than those who really need to use them as an assistive device for uh, disabled voters. I am very worried about what we may see in 2020. Bookmark this episode of the broadcast uh, and many others like it, I guess, for the I told you so files later, which I hope doesn't happen. But, exactly. Uh, I, I hope that this will be a useless bookmark, but bookmark it anyway, because just the concept of what could happen if you show up to vote during a widespread or even a small scale blackout. Yeah, it's it's 
I'm troubled by this. So you heard it here first, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but of course, that's South America. Nothing nothing like that could could ever or would ever happen here in the U.S., right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, okay, uh, coming up, the uh, fine-tuned Trump administration is continuing its attempted blockade of any and all efforts by Congress to investigate the many known crimes of the president of the United States as he continues to obstruct that investigation into the obstruction of the investigation into his obstruction of the Mueller investigation. Uh, I've had a lot of questions that I need answers to concerning these uh, legal notions that he's putting forward to block those investigations like uh, executive privilege and so forth. We'll be joined momentarily by the very, very smart Lisa Graves, who may be uniquely suited to explain some of this as she has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government. So I'm hoping she can answer some of the questions that I have on executive privilege and Trump's tax returns and foreign help in elections. And yes, impeachment. And speaking of which, very quickly, Congresswoman Katie Porter, a freshman Democrat from conservative Orange County, California, from a district which the Cook political report classifies as R plus three, meaning it generally leans Republican by three points. Katie Porter announced her support for an unofficial impeachment inquiry on Monday night, providing more fuel for a growing number of Democrats who support at least beginning such proceedings and further pressuring reluctant House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to agree to such an inquiry. One of the issues of concern that Pelosi has cited is being able to hang on to her control of the House next year, including many of the House pickups in these so-called swing districts, exactly like Porter's, that Dems were able to pull off last November and trying to avoid forcing candidates like Porter in these swing districts around the country to, to have to vote for or against impeachment of Donald Trump before next year's big elections. But Porter, in a social media post, says she now believes an impeachment inquiry is necessary after coming to that decision following, quote, weeks of study, deliberation and conversation with voters. She said, I didn't come to Congress to impeach the president, but when faced with a crisis of this magnitude, I cannot with a clean conscience ignore my duty to defend the Constitution. I can't claim to be committed to rooting out corruption and putting people over politics and then not apply those same principles and standards in all of the work I do. The question is not whether a crisis is in our midst, but rather whether we choose to fight against it. I've reached a point of clarity in my decision. Congress must continue the work of Special Counsel Mueller. So if Katie Porter, a Democratic freshman from a very right-leaning district, has found the courage to do the right and constitutional thing by getting behind an unofficial impeachment inquiry. What's the holdup now, Ms. Pelosi? Well, part of that is that more than, uh, well, 60, actually, I think we're up to 67 or 68 Democrats have now officially backed impeachment proceedings. But still, the vast majority of those are from safe, solidly Democratic districts. Uh, now we have one who isn't, Katie Porter. She joined uh, Congressman Tom Malinowski of New Jersey on Monday night as the only two lawmakers who barely won their elections last year against Republican incumbents. 
those are the only two of those type of Democrats so far to endorse an impeachment inquiry in the House. Porter barely won her race with 52 percent of the of the vote. Malinowski had 51.7. Pelosi has resisted calls, as you know, to open an impeachment inquiry saying uh, last week that the idea is, quote, not even close to having the support in the Congress to move forward. Well, it just got a little bit closer. As well, an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll released on Sunday found a growing number of people are supportive of impeachment proceedings, an increase of 10 points in just the past month. So as we have been doing for several weeks, here's your reminder. If you have a position on this, uh, feel free to call your member of Congress by dialing 202-224-3121, Pressure can, in fact, work. Uh, it has moved someone like Katie Porter from a very so-called conservative district, but it only works if it keeps mounting. So, And if folks keep talking about it, 202 224 Three one two one. Talk about it to other folks, you know, and especially to your member of Congress. All right. On that note, let's take a quick break and come back with Lisa Graves to get some information on the uh, Trump defense to all of this and what all of it actually means or doesn't as these nightmares all roll ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. Yes, please, just give me some truth. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, in recent weeks, as the Trump administration has been pulling out all of the legal or illegal stops and trying to prevent Congress and the American public from learning the full extent of the many crimes of Donald Trump, just some of them detailed like 10 instances or so of criminal obstruction in Robert Mueller's special counsel report. There have been many uh, there have been a number of, of questions that I have had regarding the legal concepts that the Trump administration has been using or trying to use in their attempt to obstruct any congressional investigation of Trump's obstruction of the Mueller report into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And yes, Trump's obstruction of that probe. That's right. If I've got it right, Trump was found to have attempted to obstruct the special counsel's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election and into his own obstruction of that probe. And he is now obstructing the investigation into the obstruction of the investigation into his obstruction of the Mueller investigation. Got it? Nothing to worry about there. In the process, the administration has raised a number of novel defenses, such as issuing a blanket executive privilege order over the entire Mueller report, even the parts of which had, that have already been released publicly. 
in hopes of preventing any more of the currently redacted report or its underlying evidence from being released to Congress or the public. He's invoked some form of executive privilege to prevent current and former White House officials from testifying to Congress or turning over documents as per lawful congressional subpoenas, even though many of those officials previously cooperated as witnesses with the special counsel probe, uh, including giving uh, testimony and documents that were not blocked by executive privilege, at least at the time, thus, as many have argued, waiving the right to invoke executive privilege now. Uh, that's at least according to most legal experts, if not White House attorneys and the current head of the DOJ, Trump's new attorney general and personal fixer, Bill Barr. But what is executive privilege anyway, and can it even be used this way? Has it ever been used this way before? Trump's DOJ also came out with a justification this week to prevent the IRS and Treasury Department from turning over Trump's tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee, which has invoked a statute requiring the IRS to hand over those documents to the committee. And at the same time, Trump recently told ABC's George Stephanopoulos that he would be perfectly within his rights to accept help from foreign nationals who might offer dirt on his opponents in next year's presidential election and wouldn't necessarily notify the FBI if they did, just as Trump's son, Don Jr., failed to do when Russian nationals approached him with a promise of dirt on Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. Trump's defiance over going to the FBI in the next election, if he's offered similar dirt, comes despite his own hand-picked FBI director, Christopher Wray, saying that anyone who offered such information uh, from a foreign national must, in fact, let the FBI know about it. Trump, however, says the FBI director is wrong. Should he have gone to the FBI when he got that email? Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? I don't think it's coming from Russia, you do. I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. In my whole life. I don't, you don't call the FBI. This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work FBI that way. The FBI director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. The FBI director is wrong. Legal scholar and stable genius uh, Donald Trump knows better, apparently. Uh, he later at least somewhat backed off those comments, somewhat, after a lot of heat. But one thing is clear. If Trump thinks he can get away with something... And so far, he's been able to get away with just about everything. He will do it. Damn the laws and the statutes and the institutions and, yes, even the Constitution that gets in his way, just as he's claimed on multiple occasions that he cannot even be impeached. And if he were, he would sue. Sue? Who would he sue? Here to help me uh, hopefully make some sense of a number of curious legal and constitutional issues that have been rolling around in my brain lately for some reason that I think I need to know more about, along with the American public who also needs to know more, is someone who seems very well suited to help me with at least some of these topics, many of which I realize are both unprecedented and constantly changing right now as the administration appears to be frankly, making this all up as they go. But as the public support for impeachment has spiked in the last month, 
The more they learn about the president's many misdeeds, past, present, and as he now seems to threaten future, the more they are calling for accountability. So joining us now is our friend Lisa Graves, who, for her part, has worked as a senior official in all three branches of the federal government over the years. She served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Policy and Policy Development. She served as chief counsel in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and also worked as the deputy chief for the U.S. court system. So she will have no excuse for not knowing the exact correct answer to all of my many questions. Lisa Graves, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Brad. I, I think you might have oversold my ability to answer your every question, but I appreciate your vote of confidence. Oh no, you better get them all right, Lisa. All right, I, let's start with uh, let's start with obstruction very quickly. I've I've heard many uh, Trump apologists claim that obstruction itself that that's no big thing. That uh, Trump's own Attorney General Bill Barr has actually claimed that you can't have obstruction if there was no underlying crime to try. To obstruct, uh, how serious is obstruction of justice as a crime? And are Barr and other Republicans correct that if there's no underlying crime, obstruction charges can't be brought? Well, this is another example of the just deeply deceptive and misleading claims made by this administration. The fact is that obstruction of justice is a very serious crime. It has, um, you know, a potential jail fines of up to up jail time up to 10 years. Um, there have been a number of people who've been convicted of obstruction of justice over time, and I suppose that if they really wanted to know how serious obstruction is, they, I suppose, could call Nixon back from the grave uh, <laughs> to ask him how serious this is. Unfortunately, there is one party in Washington that isn't taking uh, criminality seriously or potential criminality seriously that has become really the Trump Party. And um, according to the Trump Party, it seems that Trump can do no wrong, even when there is substantial evidence of his wrongdoing. And I, I like to think, uh, perhaps I um, humor myself in thinking so, but I like to think that a number of the people making those claims um, have not actually really read um, the report mm -hmm. from Mr. Mueller, in which he details extensively the evidence of uh, obstruction of justice uh, against Trump, um, and uh, in essence uh, has clarified that he was basically making a referral to Congress to um, investigate the president and perhaps to impeach him on those grounds, which are grounds that have been deployed before in impeachment proceedings. Mm -hmm. um, I say that with one exception because it's clear that um, uh, that Barr, the attorney general, did read that report, although I'm not actually sure how how clearly and how closely he read it, since, as you may recall, and mm -hmm. your listeners probably do recall, um, from the time that report was submitted to him on a Friday, yep. by Sunday morning, Barr had written his deeply misleading so-called summary, mm -hmm. dismissing um, basically 400-plus pages of narrative and uh, appendices, attachments that summarized um, the work of, you know, more than a dozen federal prosecutors, the work of uh, a substantial number of FBI agents, uh, interviews with hundreds of witnesses, mm -hmm. and, and also grand jury subpoena material. And so I don't think uh, anyone who didn't already have a bias and have a result 
sort of a rush to judgment in mind could possibly have had the hubris to read that report from a Friday to through a Saturday and develop the ridiculous summary that was issued by the man who holds the post of Attorney General of the United States right now. It's truly a shame, quite frankly, that under the broken Senate led by Mitch McConnell, that Barr was confirmed to this role that he is most undeserving to hold, um, and that he now holds basically as a lapdog to this president, willing to do his bidding and to, to really subvert the true mission of this Justice Department, the independence of this Justice Department in service of this president, who I think is very much corrupted and is full of his own sense of unlimited power. There is there is no question about that. There is no question that, uh, as you note, Lisa Graves, uh, many Republicans did not read. I would say most of them, perhaps all of them, other than Justice Justin Amash, uh, on the Republican side, did not read this report. Some of them bragged about not reading this report, that uh, they were proud that they didn't even look at it. But uh, you're also correct when it comes to Bill Barr and what he seems to be willing to do on behalf of the White House, on behalf of Donald Trump. And uh, this is a, a an issue that I, I really want to get your thoughts on because I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around this. Executive privilege. It's being asserted uh, by the White House as sort of a last-ditch effort to avoid really just about everything at this point as the American people have not uh, read the report. So Congress is trying to sort of uh, you know, bring its points to light through congressional hearings and so forth. Uh, but the, the DOJ is invoking, uh, on behalf of the White House, executive privilege uh, to keep them from having to turn over the unredacted Mueller report, its underlying documents and so forth, uh, to block current and former administration officials from turning over documents, from testifying, even former officials who never worked at the White House, like Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. He may soon also be blocked from testifying to Congress under the premise of executive privilege. Um, he's been using this privilege basically to prevent everything at this point. And so I guess, Lisa, my question for a start is, what is executive privilege? Because as I understand it, it's not really a statute or, or anything that's actually defined by Congress, is it? Am I correct about that? Uh, you are correct about that. And, and um, I think that there's no way to untether that discussion from the discussion of these underlying, the underlying evidence of obstruction of justice. Um, you know, in essence, we have the obstruction of justice as a crime or the criminal, mm-hmm. potential criminal charge, you know, dates back to the nation's founding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not some sort of novel new area of law. And the idea that any president could somehow assert privilege over revealing evidence of his own potential obstruction of justice, the crime of, of um, obstructing justice is just simply astounding. I think the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, would be, you know, outraged and shocked at such an assertion, quite frankly. Um, and I, I think but, when you, when but, you but think what about it, what executive... But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, but what, what, it what it actually <laughs> is? Yeah, what does it what does it mean? I don't think it's a law. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a thing that actually exists other than as an idea. Am I correct? That's right. You know, in, in essence, the um, notion of executive privilege is one that has been recognized to limited extent mm-hmm. um, by the Supreme Court in various very limited instances. Um, and what you've seen is, um, over time, uh, some, privilege, 
some presidents will try to assert some sort of confidentiality in their communications mm -hmm. or some sort of con confidentiality uh, in the face of demands for that information from Congress. Congress has, um, has clear authority to investigate, to examine issues as part of the legislative process. It, its role is to find facts and mm -hmm. then develop laws based on those facts. It doesn't always do so, as, as you and I know, where we've seen some laws that were pushed into existence by you know, corporate agendas in, in defiance of facts. But in general, the role of Congress is to determine what the facts are mm -hmm. as part of its lawmaking process. And um, what you've seen over time is that uh, presidents have sometimes asserted that they have a privilege as president, as a separate branch, to basically hide information from, from Congress. Um, there are ways in which the Supreme Court has talked about that assertion as uh, part of the separation of powers of these co-equal branches, mm -hmm. but the actual contours of that power have never been fully defined. And I, and I think, again, um, that there's simply no way that um, any, uh, any reasonable interpretation of whatever that privilege might or might not be would allow a president to hide from Congress, the, which, which expressly has the power under our Constitution to conduct, it, to, to impeach a president and to try a president for impeachment, to hide evidence from that Congress that has those expressed powers um, to hold a president accountable. And I would also say I'm someone who um, has been studying a number of these issues for many decades. Mm -hmm. I'm not a law professor. I have been uh, an adjunct professor for a, a brief period. Mm -hmm. But I'm someone who um, has, has looked into these issues for many years um, in different settings. And um, my con law professor in college was a, a tried-and-true sort of conservative mm -hmm. and uh, he trained me in a number of um, different methods of scholarship. And one of the people whose writings he introduced me to was Raoul Berger, who was this sort of noted textualist, this uh, histo legal historian mm -hmm. uh, in a way. And uh, Raoul Berger, at the time of Nixon's impeachment and this assertion of executive privilege or presidential privilege back then, um, you know, really took issue with that as a matter of conservative principles, that having such a, a wide privilege um, as Nixon attempted to assert and that the U.S. Supreme Court then rejected, um, would completely undo the idea of having checks and balances because it would basically make the president unaccountable uh, to the other branches beyond the reach of the law, especially because of his power over, um, or potential power over the Justice Department. Um, and he also, Raul Berger, also spoke at length about this question of what Congress can have a access to in terms of communications. Um, with uh, the president, the president, mm -hmm. and other people in the executive branch. And he said, um, in his own language at the time of the vernacular in the 1970s, was that, you know, Congress is not intended to be sort of a junior office boy to the president. <laughs> Congress has a right to information about the, about the laws that it has passed, and also has a right to information about the, um, the president who takes a duty to um, interpret, you know, to, pardon me, to um, execute our laws. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look at the oath that a president takes, um, that's actually one of the bases for potential impeachment is a president who is not actually um, acting consistent with his or her oath. And certainly Congress has right information about that that the president holds. And so um, I, I'm, my only hesitation, really, 
is that this Supreme Court, which has been stacked mm. uh, by McConnell and the dark money uh, that really backs him and mm-hmm. has helped push some of these nominees onto the court, I'm not sure that this court, I've, well, first of all, I'm sure this court is not actually truly conservative in that Raul Berger sort of sense Agree. of the word. Yeah. I think that they're radically reactionary. Um, but second of all, I'm not sure that some of them would not bend the law to aid this president. I hope that that wouldn't happen, but I don't have great confidence that some of them are not uh, willing to be as subservient to this president as members of the president's own direct party are. And that's, and that's of course, one of my concerns as well, that no matter what we talk about, what, you know, no matter what we know from uh, former uh, from previous case law, et cetera, or the use of this executive privilege, that really all bets are off by the time we get to uh, what I consider to be the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court on these questions. So we can only guess at, uh, you know, based on what we know previously, who knows what they're going to do in, in uh, you know, when they're actually faced with this. Has any, in the past, Elise Graves, has any president ever invoked as broad a use of executive privilege uh, successfully or otherwise. I know uh, Nixon uh, tried to uh, tried to block the tapes and so forth. That was rejected. But in in uh, more recent times, have any uh, presidents uh, actually ever used executive privilege this way and been uh, successful in the bargain? I don't believe so. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. there are a number of cases that Those of us who have been watching these issues have looked at over time, you know, including obviously the Watergate cases. There was also a case about um, where the committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Judiciary Committee was pursuing information, where there was information sought from the Defense Department. Um, I don't think I've ever seen such a broad claim of uh, so-called privilege, and I don't think I've ever seen it attempted to be applied retroactively to try to hide uh, information that's already been provided, yeah. as with, um, you know, parts of the Mueller report. Right. You know, I, I think time and time again what you see is a president who does not either understand the law. I don't think that he, personally, I don't think that he's read the Constitution that he's taken a, an oath uh, to uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, I regret that that is probably the case. I'm not sure he's even read all of the Bill of Rights, quite frankly, um, including the First Amendment in its entirety, given the way he, uh, the things he says yeah, about reporters and but, the press. But his lawyers um, have, and they're the ones who are actually making these arguments uh, on his behalf in court, you know, at least uh, saying it from the DOJ, oh no, it's executive privilege, he doesn't have to, we don't have to turn over these documents, this uh, attorney, Don McGahn, doesn't have to testify I mean, Don McGahn knows the law. He knows whether there's actually uh, any argument of executive privilege here or not. It seems like he's risking you know, a contempt finding in court if he doesn't show up. Uh, well, it, yeah. it, it, you're right, and I think that at the same time, what you have is a bit of a gamble. This president clearly thinks that the Supreme Court is his. He's said as much in a number of different settings. And this, there's this notion of if you have contempt, where is where is contempt enforced? Will that contempt be upheld uh, by this Supreme Court that this president thinks that he has, in essence, captured or packed? Um, I also think, you know, one of the things that struck me early on, I hope you'll bear with me for a second, Brad, mm-hmm. is that um, there was this moment when Kellyanne Conway was um, lying uh, and, and was, you know, sort of around the time that she was 
suggesting that alternative facts was a thing and mm-hmm. that that wasn't a lie. And suddenly I realized, you know, um, uh, the reason why there was so much dissonance in a way is because um, she, when she left uh, her role um, as a leader for the presidential campaign, the role she took within the White House was not communications director, but it was counselor mm-hmm. for the president. So she sees herself as a lawyer for the president. When you think of these people as, quote, lawyers for the president, I think you can, people can recall, um, you know, a number of, uh, you know, movies or television shows in which you have a lawyer defending someone who is obviously guilty, mm-hmm. uh, where there's manifest evidence of guilt, but that lawyer is trying to spin um, information or spin the jury mm-hmm. in order to try to get that person off. They're, they're playing a role. Um, they're playing uh, a, a, a part mm-hmm. in sort of a almost theater, unfortunately. I, I would hope that there would be some judges uh, who, in the face of some of these extraordinary claims, might actually um, sanction uh, one of these attorneys mm-hmm. uh, for asserting that the types of claims being made by the president are good law mm-hmm. um, or for make it, or basically not having a strong argument for um, for asserting that the law should be extended to reach this scenario. Those are Rule 11 sanctions under the, uh, the code, the Federal Code of, code of Civil Procedure. Um, I, I think that uh, there's a bit of a gamble that, in fact, they, if they can make an argument, they should make that argument. Uh, this president, as the sort of client, in essence, that's how he's treating all of the lawyers within the administration, whether they're White House counsel or whether they're the Attorney General of the United States, um, he's treating them as if they are basically his own personal lawyer and demanding that they um, protect and defend what he says, what he wants. That's actually not how the White House Counsel's Office is supposed to proceed. It's not his personal lawyer. It's the right. lawyer for the White House. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not the way that the Justice Department is supposed to be led. The Attorney General is supposed to be independent of the president. Um, but what you see time and again is um, is men and women who seem willing to uh, to to go to the court of public opinion and even to the court of law and, in essence, assert claims that I think most people think are not valid. Now, some of those claims may be, um, if they're measured, mm-hmm. may be legitimate. It may not be sanctionable. I'm not suggesting that all their lawyers engage in sanctionable conduct. What I'm saying is that if, if any of these lawyers actually took uh, one of the president's assertions at face value and ran into court to assert that that was the state of the law, I think they'd have a high likelihood of being smacked back for being inaccurate because this president does not actually have an accurate perception of the law, yeah. um, the law of privilege, uh, the law relating to obstruction of justice, it appears, uh, in terms of his notion that he's um, he's been um, exonerated despite the evidence against him. Yeah. Um, I, I think you have someone who is unfortunately, um, I wouldn't say ignorant of the law in the sense of not culpable, but someone who is manifestly ignorant and and actually um, hostile to settled principles of law, to, and also to settled arrangements between the branches of how they're of how they are supposed and, to operate with with respect to one another. And it's amazing that none of his attorneys seem to be uh, willing to push back against him and saying, "No, Mr. President." We can't do this. We can't do that. That's an argument that will never work. It'll be shot down. 
Uh, and then when he says, I don't care, do it anyway, I, I own the Supreme Court, that they don't just walk away and quit. They seem to be uh, playing along. Lisa, I've got just uh, two minutes, and I want to ask you uh, on two different points here very quickly. Uh, one, on this foreign help on elections, I played part of that conversation with George Stephanopoulos, uh, where he says, uh, where Trump says that his FBI director is wrong and that he is able, he's allowed to look at uh, dirt that might be offered to him from, uh, by foreign nations. Um, the Federal Elections Commission chair, Ellen Weintraub, I'm sure you saw the statement uh, that she put out saying, I would not have thought I needed to say this. Essentially, she says, let me make something 100% clear to the American public and anyone, anyone running for public office. It is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with a U.S. election. Now, a lot of Democrats have cited that, uh, saying, look, see, Donald Trump's got it totally wrong. Here's the head of the FEC saying as much. But um, she said, Weintraub said, it's illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with a U.S. election. Lord knows I don't support Donald Trump on these issues, but how is that any different from what the Clinton campaign did when they solicited a foreign national, Christopher Steele, a former British spy, uh, to purchase dirt on Trump from Russian sources? And I should note that uh, Clinton picked up that investigation from Republicans uh, who had been doing the same thing uh, during the primary, but isn't there isn't that a bit of a problem for Democrats on that particular issue? Hmm. You know, that's an interesting question. I I'm not sure of the answer to that in terms of uh, asking for a report or having a contract. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly is the case that Christopher Steele is a foreign national. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, not a U.S. person under U.S. law, um, and I think that he's agreed to come and speak. Or at least my last understanding was he's agreed to come to speak to Congress. Um, in some form about about uh, his investigation, as you point out, that was begun by, I think, the Romney campaign and mm -hmm. then picked up by the Clinton campaign. It seems to me that when you look at the um, FEC law and the, the law that um, the Federal Election Commission statements by um, by Weintraub and others, what you see is is a clear description that you can't um, you can't take something of value from mm -hmm. a foreign national. That's in part because a foreign national cannot donate to a political campaign. Under U.S. law, at least, uh, as it's been in existence for a number of decades now, uh, a foreign person can't give uh, a direct donation to a president, a presidential candidate, and cannot give a direct donation to a party or, um, you know, a close party pack, basically, when it's controlled by the, by the president. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, what the, what the distinctions are in terms of having a contractor or having uh, someone that you're you're hiring, um, and what that might re involve, re involve mm -hmm. in terms of disclosure. But what's clear is that um, is that a a candidate cannot take a donation um, from a foreign national. There actually was a big congressional investigation in 1996 yep. uh, into these and other matters yep. about kind of what the rules are. So I know you've got to go, but I, I'd love to talk with you more about it. I think it's a, a significant issue, and the idea that this president would just embrace that he can commit this crime uh, in broad daylight is astonishing to me because when she says illegal, what that means is it's, it's, a, it's, 
illegal. It's a crime to do so. It's and, not lawful. And I, and I will note that, uh, at least in the uh, Clinton case, I believe they reported all of that as an expenditure. It wasn't something that was hidden, uh, like the, uh, uh, the the Russian allegations and, and the offers of dirt, etc. So, yeah, I do think that needs more uh, looking into. And lastly, uh, he Donald Trump says that if he, he that he can't be impeached because he didn't do anything wrong. And if he was impeached, he would sue. Do you have any idea what he's talking about, who he would sue or for what, Lisa Graves? I don't know what uh, what his uh, intent is there. I suppose he thinks he would just sue Congress, uh, Trump versus Congress. He might have a lawyer reframe it differently, right? But um, I think this, again, goes to his presumption that he has a court that's beholden to him. I hope that's not the case. I hope this court actually adheres to the rule of law and not the rule of Trump, um, because um, this administration and Mitch McConnell, um, who like to talk a good game about supposedly being devoted to the rule of law, have shown time and time again their willingness to go around those laws. And in fact, Trump's almost entire business history is one of trying to get around uh, the application of the law in one way or another. So. Um, I hope he's wrong. Um, I hope that uh, th- that no Supreme Court would uh, side with him in in such a circumstance. But it's hard to know what um, what Trump is really meaning um, when he says something like that because it's just so such a ridiculous claim to begin with. Should uh, the House uh, begin uh, impeachment uh, proceedings uh, at this point, Lisa Graves? I think that there's strong evidence that the that Congress needs to investigate, and I think that that. That if the, that evidence is led uh, is, is followed where it leads, I think that would lead to the impeachment of this president. Even if the broken Senate led by Mitch McConnell refuses to do any to, to act on it, I think the evidence uh, that we've seen thus far, in my view, would lead from investigation to an, a bill of impeachment against Donald Trump. Lisa Graves is the former Deputy Assistant AG at the Department of Justice, former General Counsel in the U.S. Senate, former Deputy Chief of the U.S. Court System. Couldn't hold a job, apparently. She is now the <laughs> co-founder of the nonprofit organization Documented, which you can find at documentedinvestigations.org. And she's on Twitter as well, at the Lisa Graves. Lisa, always a pleasure talking to you. Hope we get to do it again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Okay. Once again, as I announced at the top of the show, even though power went out across a whole bunch of South American states and they were able to keep voting on Election Day in Argentina, we shouldn't worry about because they use hand marked paper ballots. We shouldn't worry about 
the entire grid going down in this country on Election Day. We shouldn't worry about that at all, right? At least that's what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wants us to think when he's not bringing up any election bills that would help secure our elections in advance of the 2020 election. And then make sure there was hand-marked paper ballots instead of computers, which is what we used to vote all over the country. And we would have complete havoc and chaos on Election Day. But of course, that would never happen, not in these United States. With that said, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. The outage knocked out all of Argentina and Uruguay and affected other countries in the region like Paraguay, Chile and Brazil. Lights out for the power grid in South America. U.S. military reportedly escalates cyber intrusions into Russia's power grid. Gulf of Mexico dead zone set to be record size this year. Plus, we have a moral duty to leave this world in a better condition than uh, what we inherited. The U.K. commits to the most aggressive climate target in the world. All of those targets hit and otherwise straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... And snarky comment. Some people think that you can either have low emissions or economic growth. That's not the case. Some people? Some people like the President of the United States, Prime Minister Theresa May? I'll send him your regards. This is your Green News Report. You can lower emissions and have economic growth at the same time. Okay, Desi Doyen, several troubling stories concerning electric grids around the world today. Indeed. In South America, electricity has been partially restored after a widespread massive blackout hit Argentina and neighboring countries like Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, and Brazil on Sunday. It affected nearly 50 million people. The cause is under investigation, but officials blamed it on a massive failure in the country's interconnected electric grid. Argentina's energy secretary said he does not believe a cyber attack was the cause, but it has not been ruled out. Are electric grids around the world as fragile as ours seem to be here in the U.S.? Yes, many are quite decrepit and have not had the kind of maintenance that they should have in order to stay functional. Hmm. And the question of a cyber attack is important. Argentina's blackout hit on the heels of a New York Times report that the U.S. military cyber command is escalating intrusions into the Russian power grid, inserting potentially crippling malware, according to anonymous current and former government officials, as, quote, a warning to Putin. The report adds to rising concerns over government's abilities to disrupt other nations' power systems. Previous reports in the last two years suggest that both the Russian and Chinese governments have successfully planted malware into the United States' aging interconnected electric grid and other critical systems that could sabotage American power plants, oil and gas pipelines, and water systems. Oh, this is all going very well. Is that the story that they did not want to tell Donald Trump the full detail because they were worried that he would share them with Russia? That is exactly the same story. What fun. In other news, federal scientists warn the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico this summer will be one of the largest on record, in part turbocharged by climate change. The Gulf dead zone occurs every summer when nutrient runoff, mostly from excessive fertilizer use on farms in the Midwest, drains into the Gulf, triggering an algae bloom that depletes oxygen in the water, suffocating marine life, which in turn 
return reduces catches for the Gulf fishing industry. The dead zone is extra big this year because of record rainfall across the Midwest that has swept even more nutrient pollution into the Gulf. Heavy rainfall events in the United States have increased as much as 70 percent since the 1950s due to global warming. In an interview with NPR, marine ecologist Nancy Rabelais of Louisiana State University says the industrial agriculture industry could help by reducing fertilizer and manure runoff. The answer is well upstream and it uh, includes stopping or mitigating the nitrogen that's getting into the Mississippi River and there are all kinds of improved agricultural practices that can be applied. But there's more. NOAA scientists also believe the Midwest floods may be killing dolphins in the Gulf, Mm. where they've recorded more than triple the usual number of dead dolphins since February that are showing signs of exposure to fresh water, most likely from those Midwest floods. Another example of the multiple and varied ways that man-made global warming is altering all kinds of systems, including ocean health as well. Boy, we really suck, don't we? Finally, though, some good news. Outgoing U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May has committed the United Kingdom to reaching a legally binding target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Nice of her to do on the way out the door. She's putting the U.K. on the path to be the first major economy to put that goal into law. May acknowledged to the BBC that cutting the U.K.'s contribution to man-made climate change is a monumental task. We have a moral duty to leave this world in a better condition than uh, what we inherited. And that's why today we're announcing that we will be ending our contribution to climate change by 2050 and legislating for a net zero emissions target. Now, this is an ambitious target, but it's one that it's crucial that we achieve, and it will take us working across the whole breadth of society to do that. And she goes on to say that it is not a choice between saving the planet and boosting our economy. We can do both. Of course, easy for them to say they're Great Britain, they can do anything. The U.S., Apparently not so much. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Go Britain. Well done, Desi Doyen. By the way, we should note that Theresa May is in the conservative party over there in Great Britain. She says we can lower emissions and build our economy at the same time. Because she's right. Yeah, Yeah. and she's not in the tank like Donald Trump. All right, that's it. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Lisa Graves of DocumentedInvestigations.org, and to you for spending any portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Those free downloads are thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I remain as listener-supported radio over your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there, and we'll see you tomorrow. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.